You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem, bismillahir rahmanir raheem. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samar Angelis. And we will be with you, God willing, all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, uh, if you are familiar with the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station, the Tuesday breakfast show, you'll know that we usually speak about three main topics uh, after we get into the news um, and the current affairs. But today uh, we are going to be speaking about two topics um, uh, after we go, go through the roundup of the news. Um, and the two topics for you today are uh, the first one being holding endangered, uh, endangered uh, elephants in high esteem. We'll be speaking uh, about elephants and mammals. Um, and in the second segment, we'll be discussing if uh, whether or not there is a model of Muslim uh, masculin- uh, masculinity. Uh, so those are the two topics for today. Uh, let us know what you would like to, to, to talk about in, in this regard as well. Uh, remember, this is your radio station and we do love for you to get involved. So do pick up the phone and give us a call. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. Like I said earlier, you can can t- tweet us. Sorry, <laughs> you can tweet us uh, and leave your comments on our Instagram pages as well at Voice of Islam UK. Um, before getting into the news, uh, Jalis, how are you doing this morning? Yeah, Alhamdulillah. By the grace of Allah, all is good, and I'm well. Very good. And, uh, very yourself. Good. Uh, likewise, uh, very good. Alhamdulillah. By the grace of God Almighty. Um, what's the uh, What's the weather looking like today? Yeah. So. Um, latest forecast for uh, UK and uh, we see that today we'll see a few showers for far northern Scotland otherwise the north will be dry with sunny spells in Wales early rain will clear to sunshine mostly cloudy with rain and showers elsewhere tonight will be mainly clear for most clouds and some light rain in the far south southeast to start uh, to start will diminish through the night as clearing moves in from the northwest. Um, if we move on to Wednesday, uh, we see tomorrow will start dry and bright for many. However, clouds and winds soon increase in the northwest, with spells of rain developing in the afternoon. The, uh, the rain spreads southeast late. An overlook for an outlook, in fact, uh, for Thursday to Saturday. Spells of rain and showers pulling away from the north on Thursday. Drier in southern and eastern England with some sunshine. Strong winds and showers in the far north on Friday morning. But dry and sunny elsewhere. Turning cloudy in the south later. With rain in the southwest. Drier and settled in the north and west on Saturday. Perhaps unsettled in the south and east so um, you know we can see that there is cool dry weather is coming and you know there there are some spells some signs of rain uh, over the weekend as well 
Okay. Uh, I mean, even today we've seen a little bit of uh, a drizzle as well. Um, and I think um, it, it is, I mean, it is supposed to rain uh, for for a couple more hours as well. Um, but but yeah, the the, the temperature uh, still seems uh, fine, isn't it? Not 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 too cold yet. Um, so that's uh, that's not too bad. Yeah. Um, the newspaper headline. So um, I'm no China spy, quote unquote, and one in three female surgeons abused. Um, these are the main uh, headlines for the day. But of course, we will be getting into uh, the front pages. The Times newspaper reports that one in three female NHS surgeons have been sexually assaulted by a colleague over the past five years. According to a paper published in the British Journal of Surgery, Sexual misconduct is rife and appears to go unchecked in the profession. It reports that the study's results have been presented to NHS England, the General Medical Council and the British Medical Association. Mm-hmm. It's a lie. I'm no China spy, quote unquote, is the Metro's headline on Tuesday, as the paper reports on a denial from one of the parliament researchers who says he is, quote unquote, completely innocent. The BBC is not naming the individual as he has not been charged following arrest. Mm. Following a heated debate in the Commons on Monday, the Daily Mail reports the fury erupts, quote-unquote, as MPs were told not to name the parliament researcher accused of allegedly spying for China. The researcher vehemently denied these claims on Monday and has not been charged since his arrest earlier in the year. Uh, Britain cannot afford to cut ties with China, leads the Daily Telegraph. The paper quotes Business Secretary uh, Kemi, who says the UK wouldn't be able to get where we want to on net zero by stopping or banning Chinese products, quote unquote. The Financial Times reports that retailer Wilco will uh, disappear from the high street next month, uh, quote unquote, as another rescue deal fell through. Around 300 of the flagship stores are due to close, leading to some 12,500 redundancies. The chain's collapse is a further blow to hollowed out high street uh, high streets across the UK, quote unquote, the paper adds. It uh, pictures destroyed homes in Amismiz, Morocco, and uh, after an earthquake during the weekend killed nearly 2,700 people. The Guardian also pictures the devastating uh, devastation in Morocco as limited aid and rescue teams join a race against time, quote unquote, to find survivors in the Atlas Mountains. In its lead story, the paper says a third of young medics plan to quit the NHS within two um, physicians, uh, sorry, within two years of graduating, quote unquote, as poor pay work-life balance and working conditions were attributed as the main factors for physicians intending to leave the UK and continue their medical career elsewhere. In its lead, the I reports that a state pension boost is on way for millions, quote-unquote, but the paper reports that there are uh, no tax cuts on the horizon. Ahead of Tuesday's jobs and wages figures for August, the paper reports that millions of people will see their pensions go up to £220 a week. That is because the triple lock deal pledges to match wage growth. The paper says Chancellor Jeremy Hunt will have an extra £2 billion black hole in the budget. Meanwhile, the Daily Express claims that off-duty French police officers prefer to party 
rather than stop migrants, quote-unquote. The Daily Mirror reports on the ordeal experienced by 11-year-old Anna Pawn, who suffered injuries after an extra-large bully dog attacked her, leaving Anna in hospital. She is now back home, but her mum is quoted by the paper saying that her daughter could have died, quote-unquote. The Sun reports that actor Brian Conley has abruptly quit EastEnders, quote-unquote, following a row with the soap's executives. Mm. And the Daily Star reports that red fire ants are making a return, according to insect boffins, quote-unquote. Um, so just qu- quickly rounding that up as well, the Daily Mail uh, focuses on the furious um, um, on, on, uh, on the furious response from some MPs after they were told not to identify the parliamentary researcher facing accusations for spying for China. The man who insists he is innocent uh, was arrested under the Official Secrets Act in March and had links to some Conservative MPs. The Guardian says many uh, question why they were not informed about the arrest at the time. The paper quotes that uh, quotes them saying the gap meant they had been <coughs> unable to take their own security precautions. The Financial Times says fears about China's collection of genetic data prompted the Deputy Prime Minister, Oliver Dowden, uh, to suggest that gen- gen- genomics should uh, be registered as as national critical infrastructure, quote-unquote. The I reports that Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is considering a squeeze on benefits, quote-unquote, and no tax cuts in the upcoming autumn statement. The Daily um, Telegraph quotes him saying inflation has been stickier, quote-unquote, than expected. Far from cutting taxes, the paper says Mr. Hunt warns that spending pressures could instead force the government to increase the burden on business and households, quote-unquote. Writing in the Times, the former Conservative Party leader Lord Haig warns that the annual cost of funding uh, the triple lock uh, locked state uh, pension is unsustainable. Quote unquote. He says steadier high, steadily higher taxes would be needed to support spending on healthcare for the UK's elderly population. The Guardian leads on warnings that one in three medical students plan to quit the NHS within two years of graduating. It reports on a study from the journal. BMG, BMJ, sorry, open, uh, featuring replies from more than 10,000 medical students across the UK. The paper says a poor uh, pay, work-life balance and working conditions were the main factors cited by those intending to practice abroad or quit the NHS altogether. According to the Daily Telegraph, a proposal to ban disposable vapes could be unveiled by the government as early as next week. The paper claims ministers have decided that uh, the e-cigarettes are overwhelmingly targeted as, uh, at children as devices are often sold in bright colours and with uh, flavours such as bubblegum. Um, the newspaper notes that in some shops they are positioned by front counters near suites. The government says it has launched a call for evidence to identify opportunities to reduce the number of children accessing and using vaping products and will set out a response in due course. The mother of the 21-year-old terror squad, Daniel Khalif, uh, tells The Times her son does not live in reality, quote-unquote. The paper says Farnaz Khalif, a, uh, a former nurse who lives in Wales, urged him to, to seek help before he was sent to Wandsworth Prison from uh, where he escaped last 
last week. Ms. Khalif is uh, quoted as saying that her son, a former soldier, became distant after he turned 18. She says, I told him to go to the army doctor to get help, but I don't think he did. Quote unquote. And the Times says astronomers have hailed a fundamental breakthrough quote unquote, in the search for alien life. After detecting signs on a distant planet of a gas uh, that on Earth is produced only by living in organ- organisms, it quotes a scientist um, from, university, from the University of Cambridge saying more observations are needed. But if confirmed, it would propel the, the planet to the top of the line alongside Mars as the best places to search for life. Um, so that was uh, the news roundup. Uh, just quickly, I, I know we do have a lot to cover um, in our two main segments as well. But uh, Jalice, was there anything that you maybe wanted to uh, speak about when it comes to these uh, the, the, the front pages that we saw? Uh, I mean, a lot of these um, uh, front p- uh, pages, there they are a lot of topics that have been uh, covered. But of course, um, you know, uh, as we all know, that an earthquake did take place, you know, in uh, Morocco. Um, you know, uh, of course, whenever... Uh, you know, natural disasters or these sort of things happen. It is uh, important as as Muslims, you know, um, again, because obviously this is the voice of Islam. And as Muslims, uh, our, you know, uh, prayers do go out for those who have been, uh, who, who, uh, who have, uh, ha- have this, ha- ha- this uh, earthquake has impacted. And it's, it's important to remember that, um, you know, uh, we should take take some time, you know, to to remember these uh, 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 people in Morocco uh, in our prayers and do what we can to help them out as well. And uh, you know, I know uh, whenever um, natural disasters like this happen throughout the world, we do there is <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we do have a, uh, a, a, a an organization called uh, Humanity First who are. Um, you know, at, at the scene and who do help out um, with various, um, you know, uh, things that are around the world with uh, when it comes to aiding um, people who, who require uh, assistance and help and especially when uh, natural disasters like this happen around the world. So, um, yeah, uh, that that is one thing that uh, did uh, come to mind and I thought I'd just uh, remind, um, you know, our listeners as well and uh, those who are who may not be aware um, that, uh, you know, they, they can uh, in, in any way or shape or form that uh, helping, uh, you know, our fellow brothers um, in humanity, you know, is... Um, it's not only encouraged, um, you know, uh, as in Islam, but you know, it's a, it's something that uh, as Muslims we have been taught by the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, to, you know, uh, do what we can to help out uh, humanity, as it is a um, a huge part of Islam where we we look out for the rights that we owe to uh, Allah, uh, Allah God Almighty, and the rights that we owe to uh, humanity as well. Most certainly, most certainly and beautifully put there. And and of course, our thoughts and prayers do go out to everyone who's uh, been affected by this. Um, And and like you mentioned, uh, it is a perfect opportunity to help and assist uh, wherever possible. Of course, uh, if you can do so physically, then that's great. If you can do so financially or by giving your time or any other um, uh, uh, valuable things that you have to offer, then of course, that is um, a great thing to say the least as well. 
Just a quick reminder for you, we are talking about two topics today, uh, three uh, rather than three uh, segments as we usually would on the Tuesday Breakfast Show. Uh, holding endangered uh, elephants in high esteem is the first segment, and if you would like to get involved, then now's the time. Um, and in the second uh, hour, uh, we'll be speaking about whether or not there's a model of Muslim masculinity, and that is the second so- uh, topic for the day. So just getting straight into the first uh, segment, um, these magnificent mam- massive mammals and mini mammoths are at risk of extin- extinction as in the unfortunate case of their ancestral counterparts with a population plummet of over 50% in the la- past three generations and this is according to WWF. In this segment we are addressing the elephant in the room which is uh, the terrific Tuskers themselves, their value, and of course, their legacy, along with the means of preserving plus protecting them. A month ago, uh, on the 12th of August, was Elephant Day, but why not continue to recognise the largest living land animal with National Elephant Appreciation Day also close by on the 22nd? So, Jalice, the first thing that we want to to talk about is why they matter, right? Um, So... Elephants, of course, are keystone species, meaning that uh, they have a big impact on their habitat. For example, elephants help disperse seeds through their waste, helping forests regenerate and supporting other plant and animal species. Um, They uh, also create water holes that benefit other animals during dry seasons. They also help control vegetation growth by feeding on plants, preventing overgrowth and promoting a healthy ecosystem. Their movement patterns uh, create trails that act as fire breaks, and these trails reduce the risk of wildfires. Uh, elephants also contribute uh, to tourism, attracting visitors who want to see uh, these majestic creatures in their natural habitats, which also supports local economies. Um, we can see, uh, Jalees, from this that uh, anything, however small or large it may be, Allah the Almighty has created it for a purpose, Indeed. right? Yeah. It's not just for, for, for let's say, for, for beauty or for, for us to just uh, look at and, and be dazzled or something like that. Um, of course, some, some animals or some things are made for that reason. But of course, there's, uh, there's more reasons uh, when it comes to these kind of things as well. And we can see from... Let's say the things that I've just mentioned, the the, the trails that they make, which uh, reduce the risk of of wildfires, controlling vegetation, um, with creating water holes and uh, so many other things as well. They're dispersing seeds through their waste, helping forests regenerate and supporting other plants and animal species. I mean, it's 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 amazing to see how God Almighty has created all of these different beings, whether it be animals, whether it be us as human uh, life or plants or vegetation, anything. He's created it in such a perfect manner in which we can see that uh, it it might feel as if uh, it's just uh, another animal or another plant or another being, right? But God Almighty has has, uh, so much um, planned yeah. Uh, 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 behind the scenes, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. I mean, as uh, as humans, as human beings, obviously our knowledge is limited. But when we when we do understand, uh, you know, the nature, and, and in this case, because we we are talking about elephants, when we do, you know, 
study the the characteristics or what are the benefits that they do provide for um, nature, we are you know it's it's astonishing that you know they they uh, play such a huge role in you know in these and especially when when you mentioned you know fire breaks um, you know for anyone who who's who's not sure what, what that is is basically elephants you know with their movement patterns they create uh, pathways or you know. Um, uh, tra- uh, tra- uh, trails in their uh, natural habitat as they move through the landscape, you know, and then these tra- uh, trails are unintentionally, of course, because the elephants don't, I'm not, they don't do it intentionally, they're unintentionally, they're formed by the uh, elephants, repeated movement, and then they serve as fire breaks. And, you know, a fire break is a de- designated area or natural barrier. Um, that is clear of uh, vegetation or other uh, flammable materials. Um, so of course, when obviously if a fire is to start, that does block it from continuing forward. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, we there's uh, of course, like I mentioned earlier as well, there's a lot to cover, and we were speaking about the threats and the conservation, may, some fun facts and uh, other such things as well throughout the course uh, of this segment. But we do have with us on the line our first uh, guest for the show, Dr. Jan Schmidt, uh, Schmidt, uh, who is an experienced wildlife uh, vet, uh, vet, uh, vet uh, working as a head of wildlife and animal we- uh, welfare research for World Animal Protection. He conducted his PhD on captivation elephants and they later specialized in animal welfare and the impacts of the wildlife trade. His uh, core expertise are captive uh, elephants, particularly the captive Asian elephant industry. And having been uh, based in Asia for over 10 years, he has led on uh, one of the largest studies on the trade and welfare conditions of uh, captive elephants used in tourism in Asia, published in the reports Elephants, Not Commodities. Uh, but his work also includes a range of issues revolving around the trade with wildlife, wild animals, uh, such as curbing the global trade with bear um uh, bear bile from uh, Vietnam, China and South Korea, researching Asian wildlife markets and related uh, public health risks, rehabilitating wildlife victims of the illegal trade and exposing us unsustainable and inhumane practices through com- uh, commodification of wild animals. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Okay, I think we're just going to try and reconnect uh, maybe some uh, some issues, um, uh, technical issues over there. Um, just continue on from 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 our conversation, uh, Jalice. It's 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 so interesting, isn't it? That uh, uh, God Almighty has uh, um, uh, made things in such a beautiful way. Um, uh, one second, I think we have reconnected with Dr. Jan. Hi there. Hello. Thanks oh, for having me. Hi there. Uh, and very, uh, you're very welcome. And thank you for for being with us. We're, we're talking about a very interesting topic and something which is, of course, very dear to you as well. Holding endangered uh, elephants in high esteem. The first question that we wanted to ask you was: Everyone, of course, loves elephant rides and shows, right? But how can it be cruel? If there are three grand of them for for tourism and entertainment uh, in Asia alone, what is meant by animal commodification and what does this actually entail? Yeah, right. I mean, the numbers are are mind-boggling, considering we're talking about an endangered wild animal and that so many are kept in captivity for for tourism um, entertainment is, is crazy, really. Um, so yes, elephant entertainment for tourists, be it rides, shows, washing an elephant is extremely popular. Hmm. Um, although we've started seeing some shifts lately, but maybe I'll get to that later. As I think we've already heard in previous section that elephants are extremely intelligent, they're sentient, socially complex animals, and we're only really scraping at the top surface of understanding how incredible they really are. 
So keeping them in captivity for entertainment is for cruel, is cruel for two main reasons, really. Firstly, the living conditions at the attractions. Mm. Our research found that three out of four captive tourism elephants are kept in extremely poor conditions. They're chained at night. They're often chained during the day when not used for attractions. They're separated from their families and they're traded between the venues. Mm. Um, all of this is a far cry from what elephants actually need and impacts their well-being tremendously. And secondly, elephants must be trained cruelly to be able to be used for that entertainment. Mm -hmm. Elephants obviously strong and incredibly intelligent. They just don't let you ride the, them for, for the fun of it. They can kill people. They can cause serious damage to properties if they want. So in order to use them in close quarters with tourists, they will have to obey the handler and there needs to be tools to, mm. to make them obey. So a couple of years ago, we actually published um, footage that documented the most common training methods in Thailand. And the methods varied between the trainers, but all were incredibly highly traumatic and highly stressful, often brutal training methods that relied on tearing away like one or two year old calves from their mothers, often never to see them again. Um, and just, just incredible. So all of this is done for profit because all of elephants are seen as a commodity in captivity. Yeah. And through our research, we know that today the majority of new elephants that enter the industry have been bred and traded specifically for that purpose. This is not anymore about providing an alternative income to former working elephants in the forest. This is purely about generating new elephants for tourism, and that obviously needs to stop. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree uh, agree with you more. That's that's uh, it's terrible. Uh, I mean, and and Islam teaches us as well that uh, it, it's some things. Obviously, you have different purposes for different things, for different animals, for different plants, and uh, other such things as well, right? And if uh, an animal, um, for instance, like you mentioned, the elephants, they they don't want you to to ride on them, then of course we we shouldn't. There's other animals for that, and we shouldn't just make everything a commodity and a business. Uh, that is very much against the the, the principles and the teachings of uh, of uh, uh, our religion as well of Islam. Um, Dr. Jan, uh, you 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 your distressing uh, Dumbo-like anecdote uh, during your research trek. Uh, you, you shared this. Would you like to uh, explain this for the benefit of our listeners, please? Yeah, okay. I actually had to look up this anecdote again because I think <laughs> I've seen so many of similar problematic <sighs> situations. But but this one referred to to a young elephant calf that I uh, saw at an elephant tourism camp that was tearing at its chain and sort of rocking back and forth, being clearly in distress in the situation. And only when an adult elephant that was chained up nearby was sort of extending its trunk to and stretching as far as she could to touch the calf, the calf would calm down a little because it felt um, kind of um, yeah, re reconfirmed by that, by that adult. And, and that's sort of synonymous of what happens probably a thousand times every day during this industry. And I've visited elephant venues probably well, hundreds or I don't know how many I stopped counting. So witnessing those situations um, is always extremely frustrating and saddening at the moment because at that stage or in that moment, we can't interfere or do anything because we can't just tell the owners to let the elephant um, go and unchain it because that would be a risk. In many cases, the chaining and the controlling of the elephants is actually necessary to keep the elephant handlers and visitors safe. But the problem is that relying 
on these practices in that industry highlights how inadequate captivity is mm-hmm. for elephants. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, most definitely. Um, and and w- w- what's happening within the elephant-friendly uh, movement and how can actually uh, one identify such a venue? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think this is important. I mean, one one critical thing is that any sort of captivity is, is inadequate for elephants. Yeah. But we are right now dealing with 4,000 captive elephants in the tourism industry alone. So in order to phase out that industry, we need to find ways how to look after those currently captive elephants in the best possible way um, so that also the owners are still able to pay for the elephant's care. Elephant-friendly venues are a concept that we developed that um, showcases some very few basic principles for elephant venues to make them more ethical. So, for example, they don't offer direct interactions with elephants. You cannot hug, wash or ride an elephant at an elephant-friendly venue. Rather, visitors can enjoy observing elephants in the environment and watch them interact with each other. It's not the wild, they're still captive, but it's a huge difference to the life of the elephant compared to being at a washing, riding or show venue. Um, Also, elephant-friendly venues are not breeding or trading the elephants, so they're helping to not worsen the situation by bringing another elephant into this industry. Tourists can look out for those venues by either visiting our website or using a truly ethical travel company um, that that only offers elephant-friendly um, venues. Or you can simply look out for what is being offered at a venue. If you're being allowed to hug, ride, or wash the elephant, then it's best to stay away. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. Um, and, and just lastly, there uh, the, the the discussion would be incomplete if we didn't mention um, to to our listeners as well on how uh, they can take action. What, what do you think our listeners could do if uh, if if they see such a thing, or if they come come to know about such a thing? Um, what, how can they take action? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step is if you go on holiday, stay away from sort of wildlife entertainment activities and um, try to observe wild animals in the wild in an ethical way. Um, if you do come across cruelty on your holiday, try to reach out to your travel company or provider that, that organizes this trip and complain to them in a polite way. Mm. Uh, don't aggress anyone. Um, and then obviously we often require people to take actions um, for petitions or, or um, speaking out to, to lawmakers. So for this, please do visit our website worldandprotection.org or .org.uk in the UK to find out more and there's ways to sign up to receive information about upcoming petitions or any sort of actions you can take to really help um, achieve a phase out of these practices. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Uh, Zakla, thank you, um, Dr. Jan, for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight uh, with uh, with our listeners as well. Uh, hugely beneficial and uh, we thank you once again. We hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you very much for having me. Likewise, thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Jan Schmidt, uh, who is an experienced wildlife vet uh, working as a head of wildlife and animal welfare research for animal protection. He's uh, he conducted his PhD on uh, captive Asian elephants and later specialized in animal welfare and the impacts of the wildlife trade. And his uh, core expertise, uh, as we saw from that discussion as well, uh, are captive elephants, particularly the captive uh, Asian uh, elephant industry as well and uh, having regularly been exposed to the victims in this trade he calls for an end of the commercial trade in wild uh, animals in order to protect animals public health and our environment as well
Um, so, the, I mean, uh, very, very uh, uh, in, enlightening, uh, enlightening uh, discussion uh, that was, and, and an eye opener as well, as to the cruelties uh, that happen to, to 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 animals in particular, uh, to to elephants in particular, isn't it? Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, when we look at the uh, uh, the, the threats, um, you know, that uh, and the, the elephants uh, face. Uh, of course, because the we we are um, talking about um, you know the uh, endangered elephants in ho- holding them in high esteem. When we look at the threats, we see that elephants you know they face uh, many challenges um, that put um, you know their survival at risk. You know, one major threat is uh, habitat loss. Um, as human populations expand, forests where elephants live are being uh, cleared for agriculture, infrastructure development. Um, and you know this shrinking of their natural habitats uh, can lead um it can go on to it can lead to conflicts uh between elephants and humans right another significant threat to elephants is a uh, is poaching right so poachers hunt elephants for their ivory tusks which are you know highly valued in illegal wildlife trade markets uh this illegal activity has caused um you know, it's caused a a lot, a, a significant decline in you know um, elephant populations over the years. Um, again, human wildlife conflict is also a concern. Uh, sometimes, in search of food and water, elephants come into contact with uh, human set, uh, settlements. Um, this leads to uh, this can go on to you know da- uh, crop damage and uh, potential danger to human lives. Uh, this conflict can result in negative uh, attitudes towards elephants and even, you know, uh, uh, can cause uh, killings as well. So, you know, there, there are a, a couple of threats, um, you know, that, that they do face. Um, uh, I mean, it, it is it is a, a, a topic uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, elephants. When we when we look at when we see these creatures, these 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 uh, these uh, huge you know endangered elephants, we often you would imagine um, that uh, you know not the you you wouldn't imagine um, that the the they would be uh, uh, a lot of um, threats in in a, in the sense that we often. Uh, since childhood, we, we, we've seen uh, you know, various stories about elephants, and um, you know, knowing that they are being endangered elephants, uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a good segment that we are having this this uh, in this in this show. Yeah, I mean, it is a worrisome state, isn't it? If we if we see that uh, uh, because of poachers or because of other uh, um, um, reasons as well. Um, I mean, l- like you mentioned, um, it, they 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 can come to 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 uh, to kill uh, humankind as well. Uh, they are strong enough uh, and intelligent enough as well. But uh, the the uh, and and that's why we should uh, leave them in the wildlife, isn't it? We should, if you want to see them, then you should do that in a, in a safe way. But it shouldn't be through these um, uh, uh, through these. Uh, um, 
these entertainments and tourism entertainment isn't it Mm. because uh, of course for that like Dr. Schmidt mentioned as well uh, earlier the the way that they uh, are able to get the elephants to do what they want is by putting them in those cruel and harsh uh, um, 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 environments and just getting them to just just really forcing them to do uh, to do things and of course that isn't the way that we should be uh, uh, doing things yeah indeed indeed um, we do have uh, another guest with us dr. Joyce <clears throat> uh, dr. Joyce is an elephant um, ethologist and conserv- uh, con- uh, conservationist Sorry, conservation. Uh, sorry, this is uh, difficult to, to pronounce. Conservationist. She is the co-founder and scientific director of Elephant Voices. Joyce Paul has studied elephants and worked for their uh, conservation and welfare since ni- uh, the nineteen seventy-five. She graduated from Smith College, holds a Cambridge University PhD, and is and was a Princeton University. Postdoctoral fellow. Her elephant discoveries include the phenomenon and patterns of uh, must uh, infrasonic and long distance uh, communication, um, vocal imitation, and much more. She is co author of the Elephant Ethogram, a publicly accessible online library of African elephant behavior, has published numerous popular and scientific articles, written two books, and participated in scores of elephant documentaries. Uh, Dr. Joyce, uh, Aslam alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Oh, thank you for uh, for joining us. Uh, we 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 are discussing a very uh, important topic, and um, um, you know, just just getting into it, we have a few questions that we, we would like to um, to ask you. Um, the first being, what inspired you to start um, Elephant Voices and um, study elephant um, ethology, as well as you know. Um, uh, uh, along with this question, if you can just define what uh, ethology for the uh, what, what it means for the benefit of our listeners, <laughs> ethology is really the the study of behavior, um, and in this case, elephant behavior. And I, uh, we started. I started elephant voices together with my Norwegian husband mm-hmm. in two thousand. I guess it was eight, where when we started the organization. But we. Uh, or I have been studying elephants since 1975. And it was really Elephant Voices, uh, the website anyway, was really to share, try to share our knowledge of what we'd learned about elephant behavior with the public. Mm-hmm. So for, for many years, we've had uh, various databases online uh, describing the calls of elephants uh, and their different behaviors. Uh, but more recently, we developed the elephant ethogram, um, which describes, oh gosh, several hundred different behaviors um, with some 2,400 video examples of the behaviors. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite a lot of fun. I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to look through, you'll learn a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, um, uh, they, they they are you know it's, it's fascinating animals, and you know uh, you know any um, you know 
things that we we learn about these animals it's, it's something that you know does it's a really eye-opener um, thing for example earlier in the show we did mention um, how elephants cause you know f- uh, the term that was used was uh, f- fire breaks you know that's that was quite interesting to, to learn as well um, moving on the second question would be you know could you please share some insights from your extensive research um, on elephant uh, ethology well, um, I suppose you know when way way back when we didn't when we didn't know very much about elephants. Um, that I suppose this was one of the fundamental things about them is they live in families, and these families are are really quite like our own, except that they're matriarchal. So, you know, mothers and daughters live together for life, mm-hmm. um, and. But when, but also like our families, they they split up and come together again. Sometimes on a daily basis. Sometimes they'll be together for weeks and then and then separate for a while. So they need they need uh, complex communication to stay in touch with one another and to you know reinforce these these very lifelong bonds. So a lot of their behavior is is. Um, is related to maintaining these very close bonds, mm-hmm. both both vocal vocal communication and they're very tactile animals. So there's a lot of a lot of touching that goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, on a uh, on a global scale, um, you know, what are the most uh, pressing um, conservation challenges facing elephants? Well, you know, there are two main um, threats to elephants. There's um, poaching that I'm sure everyone mm. has heard about, the poaching, the killing for ivory. And, and that kind of goes in, in waves. Um, uh, it'll sort of creep in and uh, there'll be an outcry and, and slowly people manage to get it under control. And then, you know, and then it surges again. And this. There's, there's always some poaching because there's always been a demand for ivory, but it really um, uh, it affects different populations at different times. So, so at the moment, for instance, the poaching is is fairly under control in East Africa, but it's really threatening the the elephants of of the forest, the forest elephants, African forest elephants. Um, but I suppose overall, the main threat to elephants is is really loss of habitat. Uh, the numbers of people and uh, their needs for resources is, of course, increasing all the time. And elephants need a lot of space to survive. And so, you know, bit by bit, their migration uh, routes are being cut off. Um, and this is a, a real threat to them because, of course, then you, you end up with a situation where people and elephants are in a way on top of one another and there's a lot of conflict. I see. I see. Uh huh. Um, and just lastly, um, you know, uh, how can um, our listeners support uh, your en- endeavors? Well, you know, of course, the Elephant Voices always needs uh, funding. So um, that you know, supporting us uh, um, via the website, uh, you can make donations there, um, and to the many other organizations that are working to protect protect elephants 
and and also just being informed. I think the more that people understand um, who elephants are and what they need, um, and 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 can uh, be sort of compassionate toward <laughs> towards their needs. I mean, there's you know there's only so much space on the on the planet, and um, at the moment, us humans are. Uh, somehow have an idea in our head that it all belongs to us. But um, actually, all the species on the planet have, have their needs, and we have to find a way to, to share the remaining space that's available. Yeah. So I would appeal to people to um, step outside their own shoes and, and try on some of the shoes of these other animals and... and uh, think about how we can find a way to to coexist yeah yeah i i like the way you uh, how you mentioned that they, they have they the elephants um you know they have needs and and i i would also say that they they are you know, very important to to nature as well um you know they 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 do provide a lot of uh, benefit for for the for nature and um it's something that if 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 more people um realize the benefits and the role that they play mm-hmm. um then of course that naturally they will be uh it, it can it can uh change things for for yeah. the positive um one, yeah one of the things we're one of the things we're trying to do is to you know, in a sense, bring elephants into the room. Now that we know so much about them and, and the sort of things that they say to one another, the what they mean by what they say, um, we want to have the, bring them into the dialogue on some of the issues that, that affect their lives. So uh, we're going to be trialing together with the Ambatelli Trust for Elephants and Animals in the Room. We're going to be trialing some projects to see how that can work to, to get people to, in a sense, listen to elephants, at least by proxy. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that's, that's, uh, yeah, so I, 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 um, I, do, I do thank you for, for joining us and we, we do um, hope we can have you on the show again when we do, uh, you know, uh, have a topic uh, such like this. Um, thank you for joining us and have a lovely day ahead. <laughs> thank you, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Dr. Joyce Poole, who is a co-founder and scientific director at Elephant Voices. And with that, we're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show. We do have with us on the line Dr. Graham Shannon. Dr. Shannon is a senior lecturer in zoology at Bangor University, Wales, with over 20 years' experience studying African elephant behaviours and conservation. This has included field work in East and Southern Africa as well. Assalamualaikum, uh, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. Morning to you too. You're very welcome and thank you for, for being with us. Um, it seems you and your team uh, discovered that elephants could uh, ID us uh, if they wanted to uh, and that is that they, they can identify our ethnicity, gender and age merely from voices, uh, acoustic, acoustic cues. Could you please shed a little bit of light on the the mechanisms of this cognition please for the benefit of our listeners of course yeah this was this is what we carried out some years ago but was um some of the favorite work my favorite work i've um, been involved with with elephants when i was based at sussex university and essentially elephants live in this really complex social society where they live for a long period of time they can gather lots of information on the environment other individuals 
And we wondered when they're living in Amboseli, this area of southern Kenya, they come into contact with different groups of people, some which present more of a threat than others, um, including the Maasai, who are pastoralists and range in the same area with their cattle. Most of the time they coexist quite peaceably, actually, but there is conflict. We wondered, could the elephants tell the difference between them and another ethnic group living further away? Mm-hmm. And playing these calls back, so the voices of people, we saw quite stark responses. They were using our language to distinguish the threat associated with people. And it was quite fascinating. It's not just separate predators, you know, maybe uh, like a lion and a leopard. They mm-hmm. were distinguishing different groups of the same same um, species, i.e. us. Wow. I mean, that's, um, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't expect to get such a strong response. I, it, what would happen, so when we played these voices, it was Maasai men saying, look over there, in, in Ma, which is the language of Maasai, mm-hmm. uh, there are a group of elephants coming, and we played that twice, and the elephants would often bunch together defensively and very silently, which was really interesting because mm-hmm. when we did this similar experiments with lion calls, they would often make trumpets and noise to scare the lions away and even approach the speaker but not with people people are too unpredictable too dangerous so they would quietly move out of the region trying to avoid conflict interesting Mm. um taking that into account what are the implications of city sounds for for instance noise pollution um what difference does it make on our esteemed elephants in an ever urbanizing world it's a great question and it leads on from that research in many ways because what was happening with the voices is elephants using this incredibly large brain of theirs and complex auditory system, the ability to listen to sounds and process them. So the w- world is rich with natural sounds, but also humans, ever more so, are generating lots of low-frequency noise, mm-hmm. unwanted sound through our activities such as cars, uh, planes, industrial sounds. And that is masking the calls of many animals and meaning they can't hear each other. But it also leads to increases in stress in the animals. And they can perceive it as a threat. And what's really interesting about elephants is they, they often operate in quite low frequencies, even below our hearing threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, so these subsonic sounds that travel great distances because they're so low in, in frequency. So they can communicate for large distances. And these can be impacted by the common... Um, production of noise that we we produce, which is, again, in the low frequencies. So this is an area of research which is really being started to uh, expand on in elephants to see what the impacts might be on on their social system and and their health generally. Mm -hmm. Nice. And uh, we learned that tusks uh, are essentially buck teeth from your Curious Kids edition on, on the conversation. Why then do you think humans always want to get a hold of them? Yeah, I know. Um, I think it's a fascination that stretches back uh, hundreds, thousands of years. Um, part of it is the aesthetic, that they just are a beautiful natural substance, mm-hmm. um, ivory. Uh, it's very smooth, it's very they're, they're, they're tactile. It's also very robust, it's hard, and it's great for carving. So mm-hmm. it's been carved for millennia. You think of something like, I, I read a very interesting article recently saying that the, the uh, fascination with diamonds really was generated in the 20th century um, as a cultural symbol quite recently. But for elephants and their tusks, this goes back across Africa, across um, the Middle East, across Asia, mm. and into Europe for hundreds of thousands of years. And it was a useful substance. It wasn't just aesthetic. Yeah. Tusks can provide, you know, before plastic, all these amazing things could be carved from them, including billiard balls and, um, and piano keys and all sorts of things we use in the West, but also previously 
uh, bow tips, spear tips, things like that. So it had a, both an aesthetic quality and uh, and a practical one. Mm-hmm. Wow. But it's, uh, the, the costs are obviously huge for elephants because the only way of really getting them tusks from the animal is is by killing them, unfortunately. Of course, of course, and and we, and we have discussed uh, that in the segment of how um, how uh, 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 inhumane and uh, and of course negative uh, that is not just for for the uh, uh, for the elephants, but doing that for any kind of uh, for animal uh, is is uh, is of course very wrong. Um, uh, unfortunately, that is uh, all that we have time for. We are coming up to the eight o'clock news. Um, we would have loved to have you on for longer, and the conversation was very interesting. But hopefully, uh, if it we we can do another topic on the uh, on this uh, and have you on in the future again. I would be more than happy to chat about elephants anytime. Awesome, uh, thank you, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Cheers! Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Dr. Graham Shannon, a senior lecturer in zoology at uh, Bangor University, um, and we will be continuing on this conversation uh, in just a short while. So don't go anywhere. Um, but for now, here is the eight o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to, uh, welcome back rather to our breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Uh, just a quick time check for you. It is two minutes past eight on Tuesday, the twelfth of September, twenty twenty-three, and we're talking about elephants. Um, and we do have some uh, very interesting uh, facts for you to, uh, today as well. So, Jalis, could you go through uh, maybe one or two of them, please? Yeah, sure. So um, elephants have a complex communication system, as we we've, uh, we just uh, heard one of our guests explain to us. Um, they use a combination of uh, vocalizations, body language, and uh, infrasound, which is you know, low frequency um, sounds that can travel long distances. Again, elephants are social creatures. They live in a tight knit family groups led by a um, uh, you know a matriarch, usually the oldest and most experienced. Um, female again this is another thing one of our guests um you know explained quite um, thoroughly and um moving on uh, you know the one one which did uh, you know stand out was uh, you know elephants they have a great memory and this is something that of course from childhood we've been taught you know that elephants have great memory they can remember locations of water sources and recognize other elephants um even after many years um apart uh, and you know they have excellent they have uh, excellent problem-solving skills and can even recognize themselves in a mirror, which you know is a sign of self uh, self-awareness. Um, lastly, one one other point that does stand out is you know elephants have a unique way of cooling down. You know when it's hot, they use their trunks to spray water or throw dust on their bodies, you know, which helps regulate their temperature. They they are excellent swimmers. Um, they can use their trunks as snorkels and cross rivers or swim long distances uh, to reach uh, new feeding uh, grounds hmm. i mean it's it's interesting isn't it i mean such a such an intelligent animal uh, we were just speaking to dr graham as well and he he mentioned as well that uh, they they can distinguish uh, between us humans as well right so uh, different languages different ethnicity uh, and that's that's amazing yeah. uh, for an animal to be able to do that it it truly is astonishing and and uh, uh, one of the guests that, the, the guests that you met, spoke with as well uh, she said that uh, they they live together and they have uh, they can recognize one another as well like you mentioned and 
going so many years without seeing uh, a- another elephant it might be a sibling or whatever um but uh, but they're still able to recognize them and uh, and and that really is uh, a- a- amazing and obviously um like you mentioned when they look in the mirror they have that self awareness as well uh, that they actually they can recognize themselves as well so it's actually uh, it's 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 pretty amazing to say the least yeah yeah indeed i mean there there was one other thing that does uh, come to mind that you know they're known as gentle giants you know elephants again they're known as gentle gentle giants due to their large size and uh, you know calm demeanor you know, they are uh, generally peaceful animals but can be you know very protective um, of their young and you know this is something that with any documentary you'll see with elephants you would see that you know they are very protective of their young uh, young ones Yes, most uh, most certainly, um, and we do have, uh, 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 like you mentioned, uh, elephant stories that we've been reading, uh, or our parents have been reading to us uh, when we were children, um, and, and not just stories but idioms as well. So we mentioned in our in our introduction the elephant in the room. So this idiom refers to an obvious uh, or glaring issue uh, or, or problem that everyone is aware of but chooses to ignore or avoid discussing. Uh, to have the memory of an elephant, uh, this idiom means um, to have a very good memory, as you can see from from the facts that we mentioned earlier as well, um, to have a very good memory and the ability to remember things for a long time. The Elephant's Child uh, by Rudyard Kipling. is a, It's a delightful tale from uh, his collection of stories called Just So Stories. And in this story, a curious baby elephant embarks on, another, uh, on a journey to find out why elephants have long trunks. Um, are, are there any more, uh, Jules? Uh Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there, there's a, another wonderful story is, you know, Horton Hears a Who uh, by Dr. Seuss. Um, it's a heartwarming tale about an elephant named Horton who discovers a tiny world on a speck of uh, the importance of kind, uh, kindness, uh, empathy and uh, standing up for, you know, what's uh, right. <coughs> Excuse me. And you know, the, the, there's plenty more, like uh, Elmer the elephant and you know Dumbo, and these are these are stories that we've been, you know, reading and listening to, um, you know, as as uh, as since since childhood, you know, since um, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, kids these days, children these days are also learning, you know, various fascinating things about elephants. And um, it's uh, like our uh, guest um, said that you know when we when we, we, we if we can understand. <coughs> Excuse me, um, you know, if we can under because these are endangered um, animals, and if we can understand or be nice to them, then then that is something that is great uh, that can be very beneficial. But you know, one one thing that I would add as well is that when we understand, when we learn the benefits that the these um, that elephants do have on you know on on nature, then you know automatically it's um it's it's something that you know one person when they learn more about the benefits they have then you know they they begin to understand or you know marvel at you know god's creation you know the the, the they uh, that god almighty god almighty he did not create uh, anything in vain there there is a purpose behind um, you know every uh, single thing that he has created and that he has placed on this earth and you know uh, this is something that uh, as muslims as uh, you know when we learn more about uh, you know um, the the role that uh, you know 
various creatures that have been uh, placed on this earth, the the role that they play um, uh, in in not in only in their nature but in 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 nature, uh, you know, that covers and that benefits, uh, you know, ma- mankind. Um, w- when I say this, I'm I'm obviously referring to uh, what we mentioned about uh, fire breaks. Then, of course, one one wonders and one you know one marvels at uh, one one appreciates uh, you know everything that God Almighty has created and understands that He has not created anything in vain. Mm, well, certainly. Uh, just whilst uh, talking about um, uh, incidents and stories and idioms, um, the, even in the Holy Quran, uh, there's a whole actually chapter, uh, albeit small, uh, dedicated to, um, well, the name is uh, elephants as well. Um, and the, the reason for this is that uh, it is said that around the year 570 AD, the Christian um uh, chief of Yemen named Abraha uh, attempted to invade Mecca with the intention of destroying the Kaaba uh, which is of course where we go for pilgrimage Muslims um, Abraha's army rode on elephants and in the Arab history the year 570 AD is known as the year of the elephant uh, Abraha did not succeed in his mission and his army was destroyed by an epidemic of disease and a terrible storm as, uh, and a special mention uh, of this is made of the uh, 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 of this incident in the the Holy Quran chapter uh, Surah Al-Fil, which is named after elephants as well. Um, just uh, just uh, coming to an end of this segment, uh, we do have a lot to cover in the next one as well. But from this, we can see that uh, um, Allah the Almighty uh, has, has ta- taught us through the Holy Prophet of Islam that all the creatures are the children of God and the best among you is he who treats his creatures well. Um, Jalees, you mentioned in the introduction of the of the segment that uh, it's Hakukullah and Hakukulibad, the rights that we owe to God Almighty and the rights that we owe to his creation. And of course, animals do come under that umbrella term of hakuk al-ibad. Uh, and that's why it's so essential for us to, to look after uh, animals, preserve uh, them and, and look after their habitats as well. Not to make everything a commodity or, or, a, a, or a business, um, like uh, our first guest mentioned as well. Rather, we should leave them in their habitat, uh, help them and assist them uh, wherever we need to. And, uh, and of course, just if you, if you want to marvel and speak and see them then of course by all means you can do so but in a in a safe um, uh, manner rather than endangering them and and going to these events in which uh, you can ride them and bathe with them and all all these kind of things because that is uh, wrong and uh, there's a lot of uh, things which have happened in the background which you may be unaware of but they're being chained and all of these other harsh uh, cruelties that they have to face Uh, and that's why it's essential for us to, 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 to look out for these things when we go on holidays as well. Um, Moving to the second uh, topic for the day. Uh, is there a model of Muslim masculinity? Um, if uh, And remember, if you would like to get involved in the discussion, by all means, you can do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. And of course, you can tweet us and leave your comments on our Instagram page at Voice of Islam UK. So men in position of power must take the lead in tackling toxic masculinity. Uh, quote unquote, stresses Scottish First Minister Hamza Yusuf. He goes on to highlight its influence on uh, impressionable male youth, teens, and tweens via radical roads in the media. But how is that so? 
what are its toxic traits and what are its consequences? Uh, and is it bad to be a man? These are some of the questions that we are going to be delving into, the, uh, into uh, during this segment, as well as mark out Muslim uh, masculinity as well. So the first thing that we need to understand is toxic masculinity. What is this? Well, it's a set of cultural expectations and norms that prescribe certain behaviors and attitudes for men. This has damaging effects on individuals and society. Toxic masculinity discourages men from expressing um, a vulnerability, which leads to the suppression of emotions. And this can have a direct impact on their mental health after feeling the pressure to conform to societal norms. Some toxic traits uh, can be that men believe they have to be stoic, be violent and be dominant to be seen as manly, quote unquote. Aggression and violence can happen when a man feels he has failed to live up to society's expectations of masculinity. Um, Janice, of course, there's a lot of things that we need to discuss, radicalizing manosphere, uh, um, interrelated issues and after effects of this as well, and, and what it means to be masculine and whether or not this is harmful or not. But before we speak about all of this, what does, uh, just for, as an outright uh, thing, what does Islam teach us um, about uh, who our uh, role model should be or, or what men should be like? Yeah, indeed. So in Islam, we, we have, uh, you know, uh, the Holy Quran, Allah Almighty has stated in the Holy Quran that the that surely in the holy prophet there is a great um you know example for man to mankind to follow um so whenever we see his example whenever we see the holy prophet's example in 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 his in his uh, you know daily life or or um you know uh, in his, his teachings we understand that we we as muslims we first firstly you know first right from the beginning we see um, you know what reaction or what uh, what would the Holy Prophet may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him what would he do in such a, in any given situation and this as Muslims this is what we do so our role model of course is the Holy Prophet may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and uh, we, we will be um, talking you know uh, more about this and more of, of his of his teachings and his, the way he has you know uh, presented uh, uh, such a great example before us but before we do we do have Professor Rowan with us. Uh, Professor Rowan is an um, Australian sociologist, the author of Gender and Power, uh, Masculinities, The Men and the Boys, <coughs> Southern Theory, and many journal articles. Her recent books include The uh, Good University and Gender in World Perspective and the just, and, uh, the just published Research, Politics, Social uh, Change, her work has been translated into 24 languages. Rowan has been active in the labor movement and in work for gender equality, education and peace. She is currently professor at the University of uh, Sydney and a life member of the National uh, Tertiary, uh, sorry, Tertiary Education Union. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you. Greetings from Australia. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for for being with us. Um, I, I know that the time difference is quite 
is quite vast from UK and Australia. Yes. So thank you very much for, for joining us um, for the breakfast show. Um, well, I, I, I would presume it's actually uh, evening at that time uh, uh, in Australia, right? That's right. It's just sunset now. I see, I see. Um, yeah, so uh, we are talking about an interesting topic. Um, is there a model of Muslim masculinity? Um, the first question we want to ask you is, uh, as co-founder of the field of masculinity studies, could you please define uh, toxic masculinity? Right. Well, that's a common expression, um, but it's not one that I would ever use uh, because I don't think it has a very clear meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, toxic masculinity is a term that became popular um, in journalism uh, in in the time of the Me Too movement. And what it did basically was express the anger, especially the anger of women, uh, against men in positions of power mm. who were behaving badly towards women. And that, I think, is actually the main meaning of the term toxic masculinity. It's simply an expression that uh, of anger. Uh, against uh, abuses, and those abuses are real, of course. There is a lot of harassment against women. Uh, there is rape, uh, domestic violence. These are well-known problems. Um, but there's no reason to think that these reflect a, a, a single character type that mm. we could call toxic masculinity. Uh, there's, there's really no research evidence of that. Um, rather, I think one has to say that bad behaviour towards women, the oppression of women, uh, comes from multiple groups of men. Uh, it's affected by um, the economy, it's affected by mass media, uh, it uh, occurs as a result of culture among groups of men. Uh, so it's not a particular character type. Uh, it's a much more, it's a much broader issue than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, would you, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, would you please then uh, kindly, you know, uh, tell us about um, your, you know, influential um, hegemonic masculinity theory? My, my research and the research of a lot of other people uh, showed that there are indeed multiple forms of masculinity in the world. When we say masculinity, uh, it's not the case that all men have the same uh, personality. Um, we should be talking about masculinities in, in the plural. Um, uh, and these, this, to, to recognize that there are different patterns of masculinity doesn't mean that they are all you know, randomly there and that men pick a lifestyle, you know, like like picking a, a you know, a suite off the table. Um, there are relationships between different kinds of, of masculinity. So often there is a, a, what we call a hegemonic masculinity, the one that is, you know, most honoured or most respected um, in in a given society, uh, there are likely to be less respected, more marginalised uh, forms of masculinity that might occur, uh, you know, in in groups 
you know, in poverty or uh, who against whom there is uh, a lot of social prejudice. Um, but these masculinities exist in the same society and, you know, in the same company or in the same school and so forth. Um, and where there is a, a, a clear-cut hierarchy, uh, you can talk about the the most honoured, the most respected form of masculinity is the hegemonic form. And uh, you learn a lot by discovering what actually is the hegemonic form in a given social context. Is it one, for instance, that uh, exploits women's labour, that uh, involves prejudice against other groups of men, uh, or is it one that is tolerant and inclusive and treats people with equal respect? Um, so there are struggles to to uh, bring different patterns of, of masculinity, different ways of being a man uh, to the the most respected position. And in those struggles, masculinities change over time so that the patterns of masculinity that were around, you know, 50 or 100 years ago in, in our grandparents' time and may not be those which are most common today. There is change in, in these matters, which can be changed for the worse, of course, or can be changed for the better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so some uh, boys strive for society's um, perceived ideal of masculinity. Uh, what pressures can this entail and how may it be, um, or if, if it is, how may it be harmful? Yeah, well, all boys, I think, are affected by the, you know, the, the, the most prominent um, definitions of masculinity that exist around them, whether that's in the mass media or in adult men that they know, or maybe what they are taught by their mothers or what they learn from their peer group. Okay, we're all social creatures. We learn from our environment, and if depending on what the um, pattern of masculinity is that you learn about uh, from your environment, um, you know if that's a pattern of masculinity that emphasises power, uh, that is intolerant of other ways of life or other ethnic groups or other religions, um, then uh, the boy may grow up in something like that pattern, uh, may have a propensity to intolerance, uh, may perhaps either in fantasy or in reality try to exercise power over other people, and sometimes that can be involved in violence. Um, for instance, in, in armies and military forces. Um, so there can, you're right, there, there can be costs of conforming to a narrow definition of masculinity. Um, it may make it harder uh, to form respectful and uh, equal relationships with women. It may make it harder for men if you, if you grow up with a a narrow understanding of what masculinity is and what men are allowed to do uh, that may make you more unlikely to have good relationships with your children. Um, 
and it, it may, you know, incline you to, you know, an exploitative relationship with nature rather than a respectful relationship with the, uh, the natural world. I think that's one of the problems involved in our current environmental crisis. In fact, that the people who hold power in our political system and in our economy are by and large not those who have a, a respectful relationship with nature. So, yeah, the, these are important issues, and I'm glad that you're you're thinking about them. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. This this is an important um, topic. Um, just lastly, um, you know, so there's many studies that indicate men are less likely to seek help. Uh, and in doing so, they choose to suppress their emotions. Um, how does this idea of um, toxic masculinity uh, stigmatize, you know, conversations about men's mental health, and how can this be combated? Yeah. Um, look, I, I know that research, um, and it is true that uh, particularly where. Um, um, Young people have grown up with an idea of masculinity that emphasizes toughness and invulnerability and unwillingness to express emotion. That can lead them to you know, um, refuse to get help or refuse to admit weakness uh, when they are actually in need of help. Uh, for instance, if they have uh, depression, uh, or, or some other mental problem, or even sometimes when they have physical injuries. Uh, I've known of men who were most reluctant to go and get medical help uh, when they had a physical problem. Uh, sometimes, uh, however, uh, men will find other ways of seeking help. Um, for instance, from friends or uh, you know, even going to a a, a hotel to a bar to drink with other men can be a form of of help seeking. So even men who have a kind of tough uh, notion of what masculinity is supposed to be uh, may nevertheless actually do a kind of help seeking uh, among their friends. And and then the uh, to to the extent that's true, uh, the problem is to persuade them to expand that that reliance to you know be willing to admit a need for help and be able to get effective help uh, because alcohol is usually not an effective therapy um, but you know professional advice or support from you know your family or from a wider friendship group from women uh, these may actually be important ways of dealing with problems like like uh, depression uh, uh, mental strain and so forth so there are lots of things that can be done uh, both to you know encourage uh, boys growing up to more all open and, and tolerant forms of masculinity uh, and to encourage adult men um, to seek help when they really need it. Uh, so discussions like this uh, on, on the radio 
uh, I think are a, a, an excellent way of bringing the issue to the open and, and encourage men to seek help when they need it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah this is a very interesting topic and we we're happy to, you know, we're glad that we, we were able to have you on our show to answer these questions. Um, thank you very much for joining us and a happy, lovely day ahead. Thank you very much. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was uh, Professor Emerita Raymond Connell, who's an Australian sociologist, uh, the author of Gender and Power, Masculinities, The Men and the Boys, Southern Theory, and many uh, journal articles as well, um, uh, sharing her uh, insight with us. Um, and uh, and a very interesting um, a conversation that that was as well. Um I mean, it's it's uh, it's important for us to to know that, of course, with this topic, um, we especially for for men, uh, it is essential that they have a, some kind of a role model, a father figure, uh, someone for them to look up to, and someone from the, from whom they can learn uh, and uh, and emulate uh, the ways that, that they do things. And of course, that is why it's uh, Islam lays such uh, an important role on uh, on 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 family isn't it uh, on the ties that we have um and 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 that's why it's um so imperative as well that uh, fathers especially um take t- time out and uh, um, um and spend time with their families as well it's not just that they go out to work and and then they they they're busy all day and once they they come home that they they're too tired to to spend time with their children and with their family um, that is not the way, and we can see. You mentioned earlier that the Holy Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is a perfect exemplar and the perfect role model for all of us to follow in any aspect of life. Um, and that's why uh, we should be emulating and copying um, all of his ways. And when we do so, then uh, we'll be able to learn so much. Um, and that is uh, the essence of uh, of what we're speaking about today as well it's not just that we go onto our social media platforms and see what uh, men are doing and uh, and, and copy them uh, but rather we should be looking at um, our true role models um, for instance of course like the best the best example that we can give is of the holy prophet of islam may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him and try to emulate that um Jalees, radicalizing manosphere, uh, sourcing uh, sources, spreading it back into society. Um, what 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 is uh, this, and what what does this uh, actually mean as well? Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So you know, uh, the manosphere is a um, it's a, a network, I guess you can say, of um, uh, misogynistic um, online communities, or it can be. Of it's a network of online communities. Um, it is a collection of websites, uh, blogs, and um, online forums promoting, you know, masculinity. Um, uh, of course, in, in some cases, they they will promote uh, their their topics of, of other things as well. But mainly, it's seen, um, or mainly, it's it's been highlighted that it's promoting, you know, masculinity. It it also promotes, um, you know, so as some sources can um uh, can say that it it also promotes uh, views that can be held uh, to extreme views i guess and that are opposite to 
um, feminism, and this is um, various. Uh, this 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 platform is is it's, it's uh, there. There are various other things that are being um, uh, that, that are talked about as well. It has uh, been associated with online. Um, so in some cases, it had it has been associated with online harassment and has been you know implicated in. Uh, radicalizing you know men into misogynist beliefs and glorification of harassment and violence um, uh, the the severity of this is you know where we see um, uh, uh, the verities of this w- 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 the 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 severity of this the, the, the of this anti-feminism espoused within these communities varies you know with some espousing fairly and mild uh, sexism and others uplifting extreme misogyny. So, you know, the idea of uh, of uh, um, of misandry, you know, which is uh, h- hatred or prejudice against men is commonly invoked as a way to, you know, deny the existence of uh, institutionalized uh, sexism in the, in the, you know, manosphere. Mm. Um, more on this in just a short while but we do have with us on the line Dr. Sayed Hader, uh, who's a qualified English and media studies teacher with over 10 years experience in st- secondary and FE education he attained his PhD in uh, film and culture from the School of Oriental and African Studies looking specifically at the representation and role of Muslims and Islam in Hindi cinema uh, before this he completed his masters in the history of ideas with a specific focus on thinkers such as Thomas Kuhn um, and uh, Michel F- uh, Foucault and the ferment of 1960s uh, political activism. He's uh, currently a lecturer in world cinemas at the University of East Anglia. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us. Um, just getting straight into the uh, discussion, um, what relationship does cinema have uh, to ideas of uh, toxic masculinity? Cinema, like all um, cultural products, um, interacts with society. It both both sort of informs um, our understanding of different issues and also is informed by the way in which society has already set itself up um, in relation to identities. Um, and so in that respect, like all other cultural products, cinema interacts with um, the social order and so it becomes a sort of space if we want to understand um, the topic of toxic masculinity. If we want to understand more broadly, though, femininities and masculinities, cinema is a good place to look to see how it is being thought about in society and articulated. Mm-hmm. And to further understand the difference between healthy and toxic masculinity, could you please contrast two movie characters where, where this is exemplified? Sure. Um, so it would be a case of, in order to understand how masculinity is, is being represented in, in cinema, um, it, it's, it's a complex sort of issue, but two films that come to mind really um, are two films from sort of my uh, interest in my research in mm-hmm. specifically with Indian cinema. Um, the first is um, a film... Uh, called Rocket Sing. Um, I don't know if your view, if your listeners would be um, familiar um, uh, with uh, with Rocket Sing, but it's a film that um, came out in 2009 and has uh, Ranbir Kapoor 
as uh, in the lead um, role and directed by Schmidt Amin. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really interesting about the male character there is that um, he's represented as someone who's uh, very stoic in some ways um, and very much uh, wanting to offer a change in the world that goes against structures um, and systems. And as a businessman who's trying to um, reorganize the business world in, in his little um, sort of city, in his context, what we see is, is qualities of a kind of masculinity which is constantly being um, undermined and underplayed uh, by more, if you like, alpha males around him, um, mm -hmm. we might say. And yet what, we, what the film is asking viewers to do is to be on his side, to recognize that his quiet perseverance against larger structures is actually the kind of um, quality that that is precisely what makes him admirable and um, and, and likable indeed. And on the other side, we've got a film like um, uh, Kabir Khan, um, Kabir Khan, um, which is Kabir Singh. Sorry, the 2019 um, film, uh, which um, is has Shahid Kapoor in the sort of um, protagonist role. Um, and this is a film quite different insofar as this is about individual genius, which is how he is presented. And he is somebody who is presented as um, defiant of all structures, true, much like um, Rocket Singh. But very much an individual sort of um, believing in himself um, and and trying to bend the world and the systems to his will. And what we see happening in, in that representational um, space is a sort of what we might recognize as toxic masculinity. Um, aggression is being um, prioritized as a quality, um, which is very sort of individually applicable to him. But it's also um, then could be read as part of his masculine persona, whereby you bend the the world as it were around you to your will, because mm -hmm. that's how you um, gain power for yourself. <laughs> and when that gets atomized into individual at the individual level, we might sort of start to say that you begin to see elements of toxic masculinity in that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting. And uh, uh, when it comes to um, cinema over the years, um, whether it's through series or movies, um, how have Muslim men been represented uh, over the years? And what manner has this shaped the narrative around masculinity? It, that's a difficult question to answer. I mean, first of all, every cinema um, culture of varies in, in many ways so you know if we were talking about Hollywood the representation of Muslim men um, would be somewhat different to to Bollywood but mm -hmm. one thing that's um, common or interesting on both sides is a post 2000 phenomenon really where um, there's a sort of 
representation, there, there's a set of films where the representation of Muslim men is often um, through the lens of, say, terrorism um, uh, or, or sort of extremism of one sort or another. And so often um, in that representational field, the toxic element of masculinity gets wrapped up into a sort of um, into religious and political um, discourse as well, um, and 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 so the representation becomes about threat, about um, Muslim men as potentially um, dangerous for 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 individuals, for for nation states, etc. However. There have been, um, that isn't, that hasn't been, certainly in Indian cinema, that hasn't been the continuous and the singular sort of form of representation. Um, there is, for example, um, sort of uh, examples of black and white films even, um, such as the 1961 film Dharamputra, which um, is uh, produced by yeah, Chopra, and it's a it's a um, quite a well known film, um, Yash Chopra film, mm-hmm. and in it, it's uh, the story of a young child, that, uh, an illegitimately uh, illegitimate child um, born outside of wedlock, who gets abandoned by his mother in a moment of <coughs> sort of emotional turmoil. And the mother is played by Malasena Lindley. And the child is discovered in, 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 in the woods by a Muslim character. Um, uh, and this Muslim man effectively ends up bringing up the child and famously um, in a song sings this idea that the child will not grow up to be a Muslim nor a Hindu, but because the child is born, a, born as a human being, the child of a human being, so he will grow up to be a human being. And, and it's a sort of example of um, the, the lyricist is Sahil Ludhianvi and it's a famous example of um, of uh, this man who is Muslim by appearance, Muslim by by custom, and he's saying "Salam alaikum" uh, to other characters when he's introduced and and things like that. But he represents a sort of humanism, and so sometimes in Indian cinema, Islam, Islamic identities were not always demonised. They were sort of also op- available as um, as humanist, uh, 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 as promoting a sort of more humanist vision, really. Mm-hmm. So I think the representation of Muslim men is a complicated space um, and isn't just singularly um, negative or, or um, toxic. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good, and an interesting uh, take on that as well. Jazakallah, uh, thank you for that, um, Dr. Hadir, for, for for being with us, for answering our questions, and sharing your insight uh, into this uh, this this important topic that we're discussing today as well. Thank you again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Dr. Sayed Heather, who is a qualified English and media studies teacher with over ten years of experience in secondary and FE education. Um, he attained his PhD in film and culture from the School of Oriental and African, Stu- African Studies, looking specifically at the representation uh, and the role of Muslim uh, Muslims and Islam in Hindi cinema. Um, a very interesting uh, uh, conversation uh, there, isn't it? 
Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, you know, uh, <coughs> moving because we are you know short on time. So mo- moving on to our next guest we have with us, who is a uh, Dr. Carol Harrington. Uh, Dr. Dr. Harrington is a senior lecturer in the School of Social and Cultural Studies, Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand. Her research concerns politics and policy on violence against women, uh, sexual violence, and sex work. She works. Uh, she she has taught courses on the sociology of violence, sexuality, and comparative uh, welfare regimes. She has published on the politics of sexual violence, including anti-sex trafficking policy in Bosnia and Kosovo, gender expertise within peacekeeping operations, and sex work knowledge politics in Timor Leste, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and New Zealand. Most recently, she has published the book Neoliberal sexual violence politics, toxic masculinity, and uh, hashtag Me Too. Uh, Aslam alaikum, peace be upon you. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the breakfast show. Thanks. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Hi, thank you for thank you for joining us. I'm just moving on to the uh, the, the the questions that we have. Um, how do you define um, uh, toxic masculinity? Um, and you know, do you believe? The term is uh, fruitful or futile, and why has it been brought back um, via mainstream media? Well, I think that a lot of people think toxic masculinity is a feminist concept, but it's not. It has its origins in, I think, quite middle-class men's movements in the United States, but those movements spread around various countries. Um, And it was about men trying to work out their psychological pain, and they came up with this theory that modern life cut men off from having meaningful father-son bonds and initiations into adult manhood. Um, And so they theorized that that was the root of men's violence, men's health problems, their difficulty with emotional expression. So toxic masculinity was seen as something that was harmful for men, but also for women, children, and ultimately the planet. And this idea worked its way into social policies. So it was used to talk about men in prisons, about absent fathers, and it came to very much focus on ethnic minority men, men without much social power. So the theory started to become that men who didn't have a lot of power overcompensated for that with displays of kind of a hyper-masculinity and violence. Um, And that's one reason I think it's not a very useful term because it became a very stigmatizing way to talk about working-class men and minority men. Um, And in a way, it's about masculine politics that powerful men condemning the other men's masculinity becomes a way to make claims for certain groups of men to remain in power. And you see that playing out in geopolitics with the sort of good liberal Western male elites rescuing brown women from the toxic brown men. And sort of we saw that sort of rhetoric in, for example, um, there was a study of George Bush's rhetoric, rhetoric about the war in Iraq that showed how that played out there. So I don't think it's a very useful framework because of the way it plays into these power politics in, in short. Mm-hmm. I see, I see. And um, uh, what are some potential problems um, with with it, uh, in, in, with the toxic masculinity? In view of uh, your chapter, um, uh, 
problematizing men and toxic masculinity. Yeah, in that book I talk about the sort of policy interventions that are informed by that sort of toxic masculinity theory that have been supported by bodies like the OECD and the World Bank, and they have interventions into poor communities around the globe based on an economic theory that the best way to end poverty, and especially child poverty, is to draw women into paid work. But rather than fund childcare, the policy experts recommend that um, they need to mobilize men to do more domestic work. So that women need a good husband who will help around the house. And they actually um, have programs for men in poverty-stricken communities that frame those men as quite likely being lazy, don't want to do any housework because they have outdated attitudes about men and women's roles. You know, perhaps the men drink too much and are violent. So the policymakers are trying to promote this ideal family with the dual dual learner heterosexual couple who share their domestic work. And so that theory actually informs programs and workshops that seek to make men into better fathers and husbands. And I'm not against making men into better husbands and fathers, but the the way this is framed is that there are these bad men with psychological problems and outdated attitudes, and that that's the reason for poverty, rather than, for example, the arrangements of global capitalism and the lack of affordable childcare. So the solution for women is you need a good husband. It's not about making women independent and able to support their children independently, for example. So that's that's one of my problems with with this discourse. I think it's very much finding a scapegoat rather than addressing structural and economic problems. I see, I see. Um, and just, just lastly, um, you know, what do you think um, sexual and gender-based violence, um, GBV, uh, discourse uh, st- uh, you know, stems from? Um, and that's related to this question of toxic masculinity. Um, women's movements since the 19th century at least, have been complaining and trying to get better policies to address violence against women. But really they only gained any political traction in the late 20th century, 1980s, 1990s. And I think the reason for that, that sexual and gender-based violence started to become a political issue then, has a lot to do with the neoliberal economic turn. Because policymakers wanted to draw women into paid work and they could show that that increased GDP, um, they came up with a slogan. For example, the World Bank has a slogan, something like, gender equality is good economics. Um, And they actually take all the evidence that psychologists have produced about the links between violence and trauma seriously, but they argue this impacts women's economic productivity, so sexual violence is bad because it means women are less economically productive. Um, And then they again point to, oh, toxic, outdated, old-fashioned men as the reason for women experiencing violence. And so that again becomes an explanation for why women live in poverty around the globe and why children live in poverty because of these psychological harms. so the World Bank, you have World Bank policy documents that actually say sexual violence and toxic masculinity need to be addressed 
because it stops women from re realizing their full economic productivity. So mm -hmm. it's a very economic-based argument that, again, glosses over a lot of other economic problems. On the one hand, it's a, a kind of double-edged sword. Because it's great that they're thinking about these questions, but it seems to often be in terms of making the scapegoat of the, the bad men. And, you know, there are men that maybe could use some um, workshops and help to be better men, but I don't think that's going to solve the global problems of economic poverty, which is often how the World Bank and other agencies are talking about it. Mm. I see, I see. Um, thank you for joining us and, and answering our questions. Um, you know, we, we do um, hope to have you again on soon if we do um, have a topic um, such as this. But thank you again for joining us and ask, uh, answering our questions and um, have a lovely day ahead. You too. Thank you. Thank Bye. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was Dr. Carol Harrington, Senior Lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington. And we're going to our last guest for the show, Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Pearson, uh, who is a lecturer in uh, criminology at Royal ha uh, Holloway, University of London, where she leads the master program in terrorism and counterterrorism. Her book, Extreme Britain, Gender, Masculinity and Radicalization, is out with uh, Hearst at the end of November this uh, year. And the book's... Um, the, the the result of field research with the with the radical right as well as Islamists from 2016 to 2018. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show. Uh, good morning, walaikum aslam. Oh, Zakla, thank you for being with us. Um, we're talking about a very interesting topic, and we we are short on time, so just getting straight into it. Um, what yes. are some types of masculinity, and what is the difference between toxic masculinity versus a hypermasculinity? So I think I would agree with the last caller. You know, I don't like the term toxic masculinity. Um, but I think, you know, if you're, uh, you spoke to Raywin Connell earlier, and Connell kind of came up with um, these terms, but not the toxic masculinity term, because um, toxic masculinity is really about harmful outcomes. And hypermasculinity is something which is an exaggeration of uh, masculine traits, stereotypical traits. So we've already heard about aggression, about violence. So hypermasculinity could be something positive, but toxic masculinity is always something that uh, is negative. And both of these terms have been used quite a lot in recent discussion of extremism and terrorism, which is the kind of area that I'm interested in. And this is something that is, I guess, quite new in terms of thinking about this subject of extremism, radicalization, terrorism, and trying to explain why they happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in light of your article uh, on the subject extremism and toxic masculinity, the man question uh, reposed, what do you make of the man questioned? So I think... For quite a long time, um, feminist scholars have been trying to make people thinking about security, about states, about violence, make them think about gender. Um, and they couldn't get women to be taken seriously. So they, they say, well, look, let's talk about men. Because very often, it's when you think about gender, you think, oh, that's just about women. But actually, gender is about power. It's about the relationships between men and women. It's about the relationships between uh, hierarchies of men, as you've already had explained in the program. So I think it's a good question to ask. But um, always the danger is, um, as I think has been well outlined, 
that when we're talking about masculinities, we're talking about uh, problem men, we're talking about criminal men, and we're not talking about all criminal men, we're talking about particular men. And that uh, particular men becomes about race, it becomes about faith, um, as we've seen uh, post 9-11, really, for the last 20 years. So we have to be really careful about how we ask questions about men and gender when we're thinking about contentious issues that can cause a lot of harm to people, such as extremism and terrorism. Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, and just lastly, uh, during your 2015 research, how did you implement an emphatic, uh, empathetic approach and how was your experience? Well, um, it's the empathy was about you know, recognising that people that are called extreme or understood as extreme, they're people. They have uh, complex lives and complex masculinities. And I was talking to men and women who were going out on EDL demonstrations or I talked to Tommy Robinson, I talked to Anjan Chowdhury, I talked to people who followed them and tried to get some insights into the kinds of uh, reasons for their activism, thinking about gender and and what it was that was kind of making them uh, join these groups. So yeah, it's not... It's not easy to meet people that you disagree with completely. They don't necess- they don't want to speak to you. Why would they want to speak to you? They think that you're just going to write bad things about them and not try and understand them. Um, and they don't understand their lives the same way that most other people do. Hmm. But I think that meeting such people with empathy is massively important in trying to counter some of these um, monolithic discourses like toxic, it's all a problem of toxic masculinity, it's all a problem of toxic men, and if we could just sort those men out, then then we wouldn't have extremism anymore. It's much more complicated than that. Mm. And everybody that I spoke to, when they told me their story, it was very clear that um, you know, some of the key issues that remained in the group were issues that, that affect all of us. So misogyny, for, for instance, there is misogyny in these groups, um, but it, it's to some degree, some of the same misogyny that we see in wider society, which is a problem for everyone. And so I think the empathetic approach is really important in kind of um, drawing attention to the ways in which people who are adherent to extremism are, are the same in many ways as the rest of us. You know, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the problems are, are ones which we should counter in society more widely rather than just in extremist groups, which is the problem, I think, with um, current discourses around misogyny and um, toxic masculinity, even though we do need to definitely, um, you know, make sure relationships between the sexes are healthy. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. I couldn't agree, agree more. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we are uh, short on time. I would have loved to sp- have you on for longer and speak for, for, on this for, for more. Um, but uh, but unfortunately, that's that's all that we have time for today. Thank you, uh, Liz, uh, for, for being with us and answering our questions. Uh, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you, and thanks for the discussion. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, cheers, bye-bye. 0208-687-7878. That was Dr. Liz uh, Pearson, lecturer in criminology at Royal Holloway, sharing her thoughts with us. Just to sum up um, before the, the news finishes as well, 
Um, Muslim masculinity is characterized by a balance of all the virtues taught by Islam. Justice, compassion, forgiveness, kindness, humility, patience, truthfulness, courage, responsibility, chivalry, and so on. The concept of the alpha male as domineering, aggressive, vengeful, thuggish, and strong is a false and toxic belief that encourages misbehavior. On the contrary, truly strong men are those capable of controlling themselves and traversing their higher straight path of virtue as a opposed to animistic tendencies. It is righteousness, modesty, dignity and humility in equilibrium with courage and perseverance, which is exactly what we find in our beloved Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He is the model of Muslim masculinity that we should all be following. And that is uh, all that we have time for today. Thank you to everyone who was involved in the show, the research and production team, the tech team, and of course, all our guests Um, And you as our listeners as well, thank you for being with us. We hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. And here's the nine o'clock news.